With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And I was able to really win some races, get some notoriety, and I was driving the only Ford on the West Coast. So that really gave me an opportunity to get uh, factory backing from Ford Motor Company. And then I got 7-Eleven as a sponsor, and then things started taking off. Well, that's amazing. You know, I have a question for you. You know, I'm a big Tony Robbins fan, you know, back in, in the 80s. And, you know, one of the things he used to talk about was, you know, when he would talk to Mario Andretti and Mario Andretti would say, you know, don't look at the wall unless you want to hit the wall. That's what he, he, he's, Tony came back and said that. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the special Samos cast of the Neil Haley Show and celebrity interviews live from the grotto with Greg Hanna. Greg, what's going on, man? How are you? Doing fantastic, Neil. I had a phenomenal week and I, you know, I can't wait to speak to our guest. I'm excited. Again, we have Daytona 500 winning race car driver, Derek Cope. Derek, thanks for stopping by, man. And I tell you, it just keeps going and going, but has race cars, racing cars been in your blood your whole life? It has. Uh, I certainly come from a racing background. My father was a top-fueled race car driver, uh, and he was uh, in NHRA, the dragsters, and he was a touring professional. So it started early. And then he had an injury building facility in the Pacific Northwest in Tacoma, Washington. And I grew, started grinding camshafts at 14 and, you know, became really indoctrinated to the engine side of things. And then I was playing baseball, got hurt. And then one thing led to another and I started driving a stock car. See, that's just an amazing part of that whole thing. So you're playing baseball. Were you a professional baseball player? I was scouted by the Cubs and the Orioles out of high school, went to college on a scholarship and had a complete blowout uh, in my right knee. And I was a catcher. So it pretty much ended things at that point. So I had to change gears. And uh, obviously racing was something my brother had started. And my father was obviously excited about us getting involved. And one thing uh, just took off and I started doing it. And I think I started in 1980 and I was driving professionally in 1981. Wow, that's incredible. What what was the first car that you started racing, and what was the first race that you were in that you won? I started off in what they call the late model sportsman division, which was basically um, one division lower than what an actual Winston Cup car was at that time. So you know what they call the Cup Series, and it was just a, a lower division, but the same cars could race in the the races like at Riverside, which is a cup race. So it was a very unique time in the sport uh, in its infancy there back in the early, late 70s, early 80s. So I grew up running a, a cup car basically and ran it on the lo local short tracks up in Yakima, Washington. And one thing led to another and I started traveling the uh, the West Coast. Wow, it's, it's uh, definitely, and when you won, did you think you were going to be that good at race car driving at that point or what, what was it what was your mindset at that point well my father i think you know he had a lot of vision about where the sport was going he was building engines for cars that were traveling they were running the winston west series and they would run against the cup cars that come from back east so you know we had a lot of vision and knew what i had to do he felt like you know obviously he said you're never gonna be the best race car driver in the world but you need to be the most well-rounded and the most versatile. So I took speech classes, marketing courses, uh, and you know what? I just started getting involved with R.G. Reynolds and the Winston brand. They were doing a lot of promotions back then, and I was able to really win some races, get some notoriety, and I was driving the only Ford on the West Coast. So that really gave me an opportunity to get uh, factory backing from Ford Motor Company, and then I got 7-Eleven as a sponsor, and then things started taking off. Well, that's amazing. You know, I have a question for you. You know, I'm a big Tony Robbins fan, you know, back from in the eighties. And, you know, one of the things he used to talk about was, you know, when he would talk to Mario Andretti and Mario Andretti would say, you know, don't look at the wall unless you want to hit the wall. That's what he would, he, he's Tony came back and said that what, what other racing tip, you know, could you share real quick besides looking at the wall? <laughs> Well, you know, it, that, it, that is the key thing. It really is the, the optics of racing is optical. It is one of those things where you really have to move your eyes constantly. And you really, because in, in cup racing, you actually look out the rearview mirror almost as much as you do out of the front. You're really, you're, you're in defense mode a lot. 
So you're always blocking, you're always positioning, positioning yourself, you're making all these counterproductive moves, but yet they have to be done to position you well. So it really is uh, an optical thing. Uh, and, and I think that's the biggest thing I tell young drivers in my coaching is you have to look way ahead. You have to be looking, you know, in every aspect, you have to really be optically moving your eyes to where you want to go, because that's where ultimately you're going to turn the wheel. Wow. It, it's, it's unbelievable when you talk about those things. Now, how challenging it is, is it to be a professional race car driver? Now you're talking about the reaction time and different things. How many decisions do you have to make in a race? Just like alone when you're doing, you know, driving the wheel, not when you're at pit stops, but just, at, just driving. Well, when you're in the cup series and you're running at speeds over 200 miles an hour, things happen really quickly. But your 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 mind and your eyes are very unique mechanisms, and that things things slow down, and that's the that's the thing that I think is uh, so so interesting is that you can go 200 miles an hour and then you feel like you're going 75 until you turned around backwards. Then the business picks up. But it really is one of those things where you know you really sit back in the seat and you're making all these conscious decisions very in milliseconds. And you're processing, your mind's processing somebody talking to you on the radio, telling you clear low if you want it, clear high if you want it. They're lining up, the energy is building on the high side. So I take all this information, I listen, and I process it. And you're doing it in milliseconds because you're traveling the length of a football field, you know, in a matter of you know, a split second. So you really have to just absorb all this and make those decisions quickly and ultimately you know it easy it's easy to make a mistake but you become so in one with the race car that it becomes very instinctive and that's what i love about it and i think that's where i try to teach young kids about getting comfortable in the race car sitting back in the seat and absorbing it all your senses are heightened wow you know given all of that you know is it is it safe to say that a race car driver and maybe a fighter pilot have to have a very similar mindset and and you know physiology to manage and control the engine like that the uh, the machine that they're driving or flying absolutely i think there's two ends of that spectrum one would be riding a bronc you're just hanging on you're you're driving a projectile that is going through the air and there is so much excessive movement because of the air and just disturbed and like you say a fighter pilot the same thing things are happening so quick you become one with the airplane you're dealing with you know, all the th elements of, you know, traveling a projectile through the air and all the elements that you don't really know or understand, but you become very proficient at once you know, you know, you're very good at your trade. Same with race car driving. You know, you, you become like sitting in front of a computer, you know, it's easy to make all those choices and things just happen and you type without looking. In a race car, same thing. You physically can look and you can see, you can pick out a people in the stands going 200 miles an hour because Everything slows down and your mind just processes it so quickly. So I think the same thing as a fighter pilot. I mean, very technical. I mean, and things happening at a high rate of speed. Wow. What is what injuries have you had in your career? Well, I've had several bad crashes uh, and, you know, I've had you know, multiple, you know, you know, concussions, obviously. Uh, and back then you just drove hurt. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the special simulcast of the Neil Haley Show and Celebrity Interviews live from the Grotto with Greg Hanna. Greg, what's going on, man? How are you? Hey, I'm doing fantastic, Neil. I'm so excited to talk to our guest. Yes, exactly, because he loves wine like you love wine. So I'm excited to welcome to the show Kevin Buckler. He's the founder and CEO of the Racers Group and Adobe Road Winery. Uh, Kevin, thanks for stopping by, man, and I appreciate you coming on. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me, guys. All right, Kevin. So let me just jump right into this, specifically your race car driving career first. Let's talk about that. Explain that to us and how this mixes with the wine. Yeah, sure. I'm a Southern California car kid and a Newport Beach surfer kid from way back in the 70s. And when I went away to, you know, seek your fame and fortune, I ended up going into a, a real estate business in the Midwest and worked my butt off and always had a little car, have some fun with it. 
And when I came back to uh, came back to the Midwest, we were, we're a little company. They're kind of taking a chunk out of like an armor, Under Armour and and Nike. And uh, I decided it was time to exit. And so what, what am I going to do? You know, what I what, I, what I'm doing, what I love to do is cars and wine. Came back to California in 92. You know that joke. Uh, how do you make a small fortune in? So we figured out a way to uh, not risk our capital and started racing. No internet, no anything. Magazine ads and a lot of people pushing from, from, from behind. And indeed, we started a professional sports team based around Porsche race cars. And that was in 92. And it just, it was the Rocky Balboa story that just kept growing and growing. That's cool. Oh, that's phenomenal. So you won a bunch of like Rolex races. Tell me about those. Yeah, we when we went, we were starting to race. It was in, you know, local sports car events, local autocross events. And I think I'd never had a, you know, a proper shot ever in a, in a pro race. But one of my good friends, Mike Kobler from Togo's, he was with me in the stands. And uh, 1994, all the big boys are there. And he's like, hey, Kev, you know, boom, hits me on the shoulder. What are you going to do? We should we should do this race next year. I'm like, Mike, it's expensive. He's like, ah, I'll cover the car. You figure it out. So, all right, the gauntlet is thrown down. So now it's time, you know, a year later, here we are trying to get, you know, get the car going. We've got, but the cool thing there at Sonoma Raceway back then was everybody was very collaborative. You know, we had everybody was helping, you know, it was like, it was our car, you know, our team. And so we debuted the car and, uh, you know, I remember the guys sticking their microphones in at the last minute saying, you know, how are you going to do all your heroes rider today? And I'm like, oh, I just want to stay out of the way. And we won. <laughs> we won. And so nice. right flag to flag to flag. And I think Deborah and I were driving home that night saying, I think we just changed our life in some way. Well, fast forward, you know, to 10, 2002, which is 10 years of business. And I had a bunch of really cool partners that had been involved with us on the racing side. They'd been kicking in money, making making money with their sponsorships any way they could. And they said, you know, we would love to, I've been going to Daytona for, for seven years at that point, and always getting my butt whooped because yeah, the resources are incredible to try to make it work. So we went down there, probably equipped, train, train, train. They said, look, we'll back you if you promise to try to, you know, do what you're going to do. And uh, indeed, we went down there and we freaking won the thing. And uh, we were a total no-name team. We were staying in a crappy hotel, double up on the rooms. My wife called it the Stinky Cheese Hotel, right <laughs> next to the track. So you didn't get any sleep either. So that's never very good. But no, it was just all really bad until the green flag, until the chocolate flag dropped. Then it was really good. So, oh. um, but it taught us a taught us kind of a lesson, I think, at that point. And the very next race was where our I think world really changed. You know, we. We'd been, um, I'm a strategy guy. That's my thing. That's my thing. So uh, the logistics and all that other stuff, even with the design, you know, I, I design all the stuff, but I can't draw a stick figure. So we have a really good team. And I will say that over and over and over, team, team, team. I might be the quarterback, but I can't do anything without that team. So uh, here we go. Going back to Lamar. Going to race. A little tight. Crappy hotel, you know, limited resources, but we had a good car, good group, good guys. And it was always intimidating. I said, guys, listen, close those garage doors and don't look around because it's the worst thing you could possibly do. Just don't look around. Look, we beat some of these guys last, you know, a couple months ago at Daytona. And, um, you know, we're good. And and let's just let's be let's be humble and let's do our job. But let's whatever we do. The one thing we learned, you cannot change the course. You cannot change the hype. You cannot change. What you can change is your own personal performance. And it sounds so simple, but in professional endurance racing, the number one thing that you have to watch out for is enforcers. And uh, man, oh man, fuel and tires are the strategy, but sure as sure snuff, you know, it's just uh, something goes wrong. You're chasing the guy down into the bus stop going a little too deep. Your hair is on fire. You're the number two driver for Porsche in the world. You're going to get this guy. You're going to get him. And then you got your you got your splitter too at the same time. So just to reinforce here as you can. And that was our that was our goal, and we did it, and we won. So you know it's amazing. What heroes did you beat that one day that changed your life? The factory drivers that we've been chasing before. You know all the guys. The I think it was you know Lucas Lore and. Sasha Mason and a lot of the factory Porsche drivers, and then from the other teams as well, from Ferrari. Um, and us Porsche guys, we don't pay as much attention to that, but they are very fast. 
come done done very well. But it was uh, it was to me it was the big boys at the time. So we became one of them. And what do you, what I I want to understand more professional racing outside of some of the what is the professional racing you compete in, and what's the difference between some of these other racing venues and things like that? Yeah, sure. It's easy for me to explain because a lot of times people are confused. You know, the confusion within professional sports car racing is there's so many classes. You know, you don't know which one a prototype one or a prototype two or a GT one or a GT two. You know, if I had my way a long time ago, I would have probably ended it all and just been GT, GT1 and GT2. But I got I got slapped for that when I said that one time. But um, we, we love seeing the manufacturers involved at the high level with the prototypes. Um, and they are amazing using, you know, new green technology and the things they do to sort of, you know, win on Sunday, sell on Monday type of thing. But, um, yeah, we uh, – we run four different classes. We're running in the basic class that looks like the car behind me back here. It's a GT, a GTS, GT Porsche number 66. And you recognize it as a Porsche. You recognize the Astons, you recognize the BMWs. And so um, I think that ends up being a lot of a fan favorite. And I think that's cool. But uh, of an 80 car field at Le Mans uh, or Daytona, we're, you know, we're 50, 40, 50 of the cars. And, um, it's just, it's always been challenging, really challenging there. Isn't that wild, Greg? Welcome to the special simulcast of the Neil Haley Show and celebrity interviews live from the grotto with Greg Hanna. Greg, what's going on, man? How are you? Doing fantastic, Neil. How are you? Fantastic. And our guest today, I'm so excited. Uh, we all know her as Hot Lips Houlihan, Loretta Swit. Uh, Loretta, thanks for stopping by. How are you? I'm terrific. Thank you. Just terrific. All right, Loretta. Let's kind of jump right into this specifically enough. And tell me specifically enough uh, a little bit about how you got your big break with MASH. How did that happen? Oh, I wish it was an exciting story. I was already doing uh, leads on television and, and really uh, important shows. The, the big shows of that era, Gunsmoke, one of the longest lasting our programs I had a great you know jim arnaz that whole that whole set, the, the cast and um <clears throat> millie stone anyway then maddox jim uh, mike connor's very popular very very warm wonderful actor and um hawaii 50 i did about three of them so so i was there and um <laughs> what did they say? We're there at the right time. Uh, it was a good time for me because this was going to be on CBS. I had just done a uh, a leading role on a new show with Glenn Ford called Cades County, and we did it at Fox, and it was for CBS. So the people there involved uh, were not unfamiliar with me or my work. Which was which was wonderful because they were fans, and so when when the uh, show, the idea of the show and, and so forth came up, uh, I was uh, the top of the list to, to meet with for the role. I was in Hawaii with Jack Lord. I was doing a two-part Hawaii show, and uh, I missed all the kind of clap and hubbub. I don't know you know about the show. They saw, I've told hundreds of uh, people, women, and um, when I came back, I was it was sort of at the tail end of casting. I remember my, uh, here's a piece of trivia. I was going to say, my agent said, have you seen MASH? And I said, no. And he said, oh, wonderful. Well, anyway, you know, but um, I, I, I never saw it. I hadn't seen the film. And then I got the part. So I thought, well, I'm not going to see it now. You know, I don't want to see it now. 
And so I, I've never seen the film. And it, <laughs> it's kind of a really funny piece of trivia. Um, so I went up and met Gene Reynolds and Larry Gelbart. Um, none of us could have expected to be a part of the phenomenon that MASH has become. But I, because I, I think I would have been very nervous. <laughs> I think I think it would have been very nervous. But I was not. I had fun. They were fun. Everybody was relaxed. There was no script. There was no script. You were going up for a job that wasn't created yet. <laughs> I said, it's, a, it's kind of getting a, a, an interesting sort of story now. But um, I there was nothing um, exciting or different. It was just going up to see these people about a job, so to speak. And then, and and they liked me. They, um, uh, my agent knew that I was strong up for the role, and we had an, um, a a a film. We had an offer for a film at Universal, and the dates conflicted with the shooting of the pilot. So my agent called and said, um, um. They, they should let him know as soon as they've decided because we have an offer that is a good one. It was a um, wonderful film. So um, um, they said, and when he made the call out of courtesy, Gene Reynolds took the call and said, this is amazing. We were just going to call you. We've decided to go with Loretta. And that was it. <laughs> I told you it wasn't a great story. It just, it, I went for a job and I got it. So, uh, but I I do think um, I was uh, very very blessed by by um, um, being known uh, by not the network and the studio and uh, all all play all people considered all they all thought gee you know Loretta Switch would be great in this role or whatever they whatever they thought but I mean it was um, wow great you know. Well, that's fantastic. And I know I really enjoyed watching, you know, you and the rest of the crew on those shows over the years. Um, do you have any like fun stories? You know, I love to ask people that, you know, behind the scenes, you guys are acting, you probably have some great stories. What's one story that might stick out? Come on, rethink that question. 11 seasons with the bus and these great bunch of men. Uh, do I have any? Fun stories. Are you serious? Is that a serious question? It, it was serious. I, I asked for what's the one that sticks out the most in your mind, Loretta? What? Good, great. Every day was a fun story. <laughs> um, we were, we're all then and now such close friends, family. It was a pleasure to go to work in quotes work you know you're doing what you love with people you care about <laughs> and you're working with people who are incredible there it didn't come better than larry gelbart for example what a what a talent gene reynolds with his wealth of experience and so i can go on and on about people they were just best the best you couldn't help but um, be infected by that Doing your best work. You're working on material that you loved. You, I, it, no, it was really um, a blessing. We, I, I've always called it the miracle of Mash. In my in my art book, uh, I give a, a page to Mash, and I I have a beautiful lithograph that was given to us on the tenth year, the tenth uh, anniversary. And uh, we, it was a surprise. We did not pose for the painting, and um, and it's beautiful, and um, it's in my.
Hi, everyone, and welcome to the special simulcast of the Neil Haley Show and Celebrity Interviews live from the Grotto with Greg Hanna. Greg, what's going on, man? How are you? I'm doing amazing. How are you doing, Neil? Fantastic. And our guest today, Charlotte Stewart. We all know her from Little House on the Prairie and also uh, many other things. Charlotte, thanks for stopping by. How are you? I'm just fine. I just got back from a long trip to Illinois, uh, Oklahoma, and Missouri. What did you? Where, where did you go out there for? Business? Oh, it was a little house in the prairie event uh, <laughs> to meet all the local people in Missouri and Oklahoma and Illinois. And we had a wonderful time. You know, Greg, I'm going to go to Greg for this. And you and I, Greg, we remember Little House on the Prairie. Sure. But there's some people, you know, out there that just are living, are growing up with it right now too, Greg. It's crazy yeah. how this this show can tell that story, right, of of living a simplistic life, right, Greg? Yeah, it's pretty amazing. You know, it's, there's a lot of great things to say about living simply, right, versus high tech and complex. So it has a lot of pluses to it. So Charlotte, when you got the opportunity to audition for the Little House Little House in the Prairie, did you know it'd be as successful as, you know, because it was a book series before that? <laughs> no, I didn't. In fact, I didn't even know what Little House on the Prairie was. I had never read the books. I didn't know anything about it. And um, when, I, when I went in for my audition, it's then I realized it was going to be a Michael Landon pro, you know, project. And I went, oh my gosh, this is the luckiest thing I've ever fallen into. <laughs> but it, it, uh, I had no idea how popular it was going to be. In fact, it took a few years for us to catch on. Uh, if we went any any place but Los Angeles, where we were shooting, we were very popular. But you know, in our hometown, everybody kind of went, "Eh, what's that?" <laughs> but we've been no. we've been on now for forty nine years. Wow. That's amazing. So you were you were Miss Beetle, right? That's that's correct. The school that's, teacher. Yeah. And, you know, I think the reason I was so comfortable with all the children uh, when we were shooting is my sister had seven children, you know, ages, you know, two, four, six, eight, ten, you know, up to teenagers. So I knew how to handle a crowd of children, you know. That's incredible. What, what was it like working with the rest of the uh, cast members and the show itself? Well, I I had just. I had never met Melissa Gilbert or Melissa Sue Anderson or Allison Arngram, who played Nellie. But I have to tell you, you know, years later, when we all started going on the road and meeting fans, Nellie and I became, a, have, you know, real pals. We traveled together a lot. And um, I just admired them so much because they were always on time. They always knew their lines. They were so professional. And yet they stayed children. You know, that was Michael's rule was come on time and know your work and anything goes after that. So, you know, he, he kept that freshness of the child. They weren't, you know, little child actors. They were kids who happened to be on a television show. And he really uh, played that very well. Now, we think about Michael Landon again and the, the amazing talent he was. Charlotte, working with him, what did you see that was the brilliance of who Michael Landon is? Well, he was, you know, he was very outgoing. Uh, he was very easy to get to know. But the thing I admired about him the most is he was a family man. And he had a large crew that worked for him, not just the actors, but quite a large crew, you know, 25 or 30 people. And they had all come with him from Bonanza. They, had, <laughs> they liked him so much. They were so um, appreciative of the way he worked. You come in at six o'clock in the morning makeup, hair, whatever, the crew is setting up the set. And, you know, you break for lunch, normal time. You get to go home at six o'clock because he was a family man and his crew had families. And, you know, I had worked on, oh gosh, uh, Bonanza, Gunsmoke, FBI, Medical Center, My Three Sons. You worked until 10, 11 o'clock and then you were expected to come in at six o'clock in the morning. It's exhausting. So he would shoot so that he would shoot just enough to cover a master, which was the, the scene, you know, from beginning to end. And then he would, when he, he planned his close-ups so that we weren't sitting there all day long doing one scene. We covered a lot of territory in a day. So we got to go home at six o'clock. And of course I got to go home earlier because I worked with the children who could only work four hours a day. So they <laughs> had to go to school. 
they had, you know, they were on the set going to school, then they had to take so many breaks during the day. It was all according to what the Screen Actors Guild um, permitted. Wow. wow. But if, if you think about Twin Peaks and you think about Little House on the Prairie, which which of those shows did you enjoy working on the most? And like, what were the differences that you would oh see? Oh my Obviously, gosh, what a funny question. <laughs> um, well, Little House on the Prairie, I was on for four years. Um, it was comfortable. It was timely. Uh, they treated me very well. I made friends. Um, Twin Peaks. I had worked with David Lynch on his first film, Eraserhead, which won the LA Film Award when it was released. I had no, I mean, it was the craziest film to shoot. And I did that before I did Little House on the Prairie. Oh. In fact, I went from Little House on the Prairie shoot to the Waltons working. David Lynch only worked after midnight. So I would work all night long with the David Lynch film. And then six in the morning, I was expected to be at Warner Brothers to be on the, the um, Walton set. And it was crazy for a while, but that was the kind of life. That's what I, I did. I did whatever came up. And of course, I always did student films because how are they going to know how to direct actors if they don't work with professional actors? So my point was, you know, give them all the time I could. And then much later, of course, David Lynch became very popular. He went on to do a lot of films. And then he called me up one day and said, Shar, you want to go to work? <laughs> and I said, what? <laughs> he said, yeah, I've got a series. It's called Twin Peaks. And I think you'd be good on it. So that's how I got Twin Peaks. Charlotte, did you think that David was going to be that much of a talent? First meeting him, I guess, seeing his growth as, as a director and a creative? I had no idea. I, I act to tell you the truth, I questioned whether he would, you know, make it in the business because he was so particular about what he shot. And the movie was kind of weird. You know, it was it was nothing I had ever done before. And his in the way he worked from midnight to six in the morning was kind of crazy. Um, but I, I knew that from working with him, if you went to see the movie, you could know. We're back to the Neil Haley show, and I'm so excited about my guest today. Uh, she is she has appeared on Top Chef and more, and is a James Beard winner. I'm excited to welcome the program celebrity chef Michelle Bernstein. She's going to dish on her health journey with psoriatic arthritis. How are you, Chef? Uh, thanks for stopping by. I'm, thanks, I'm awesome, Neil. Thanks for having me here. All right, so let's tell us who else is with us today. So on behalf of Novartis, I am here with my rheumatologist and my hero, Dr. Carlos Sesson. Ah. Hi, we Dr. Are, Carlos. Thanks really... for stopping by. Yeah. Thank, Thank you. you. We wanted to raise awareness about psoriatic arthritis. Okay. So let's talk about specifically enough how you found out you had it. How did that happen? So... I didn't know I had it, but I had a lot of pain. I had terrible stiffness. My joint pain was so much so that I really had a hard time even just walking out of getting after getting out of bed. Um, and then let's not even talk about my career and cooking and and you know I had a hard time doing all the things that I would normally do. Um, but I really in my head thought that my career was going to be terribly affected. And so it took me a while to really come to grip and come to terms with the fact that something was, was going on because it was getting progressively worse. And I was afraid to even tell my husband about it because, you know, once you put it out there, you don't know what's going to happen afterwards. Right. So I finally spoke to my sister and she did a little digging. Um, 
And, you know, she remembered that I had psoriasis, which I, I have a very small spot on my leg. It wasn't a big deal. And so I didn't even remember that. And she said, I think you need to go find a rheumatologist. And I was like, well, why? I don't think I have arthritis. And she said, I think you have psoriatic arthritis. It totally makes sense. And so I went out and found um, my doctor and he's here with me today. And I feel like a new person. Now, Dr. Carlos, once you saw her, were you you pretty much identified? You knew what it was, right? Once you got I mean, in. you know, when you sit down with with any patient, you know, you have to go through a process of of speaking to them, examining them, and, and gathering information. But it became uh, pretty quickly obvious that what she had was psoriatic arthritis. Yeah, and definitely when she figured that she had that. What were your thoughts, Dr. Michelle? Did you think that was a, the, the, not, were you upset about it? Or how did you respond to it? Um, to be honest with you, I was first, at first shocked. Um, but second of all, to just actually, for someone to just tell me what was going on with me. And, and that was number one. Re, to get the diagnosis was such a big deal. And then eventually to know that there was a possible treatment out there that could work. Um, I mean, the whole thing was kind of mind blowing. And doctor, you made it really easy for me to understand. And I guess my fears were all put aside with the idea that I could just feel better and that I could have my, you know, I, I could in my mind have my career back. I never lost my career, but you know, all these things were not lost. Right. And so um, I was very hopeful and I'm, I think I'm just really lucky to be honest mm -hmm. with you. And then Dr. Carlos, what is the treatment when you have that diagnosis? So, um, you know, we, we sit down, we sat down together. Um, you know, we, we, you have to, as a, as a rheumatologist, you have to examine the aspects of psoriatic arthritis and then take that into consideration together with her other uh, health-related concerns. So we, we sat down together, we put our heads together, and that's when we decided that uh, the right choice for her was uh, Cosentix. Um, another, uh, it also uh, is called secukinumab. Uh, it's a prescription medication for active psoriatic arthritis in individuals that are two years of age or older. Um, so we talked about the medication, the advantages, the, the benefits of it, but we also talked about possible side effects. Um, the most important side effects to think about are um, allergic reactions that can occur, also possible infections. So it's also very important to keep in mind things like um, if you have fever, chills, sweats, if you have a cough, um, those are important things to keep in mind. There are other side effects that are um, also available um, on the website. And uh, Dr. Michelle, when, I mean, sorry, Chef Michelle, um, when you found out specifically medication, everything, what progress has you made? Kind of give us the update where you are today after treatment and everything. Um, well, you could tell in my work. So I'm opening four new restaurants this year. Uh, I, <laughs> I play hide and seek regularly with my kid. Um, a lot of new recipes on the horizon, a lot more TV than I've ever done. And it's been an incredible year. Um, I can't say enough about it. I, I think people really go, have to go to saverlifewithpsa.com to really become an advocate for yourself to find all those questions that need answers. And for me, you know, I have empowerment, you know, knowledge is power. And I feel like through this whole thing, I have only gained knowledge and um, understanding that, you know, I'm the only person that can really speak up for myself and thus finding diagnosis and treatment. And so, you know, it's a wonderful feeling to be able to give that back to people. Now, let's kind of, when you talk about this, where would you have been if you did not get the treatment? Would you be able to do what you're able to do today? I don't think I'd even want to know, um, to be honest with you. Let's put it this way. Waking up, I, I couldn't go to the bathroom by myself in the morning. So um, it's it's pretty incredible feeling right now. And, and so to be able to share that 
and be able to just let people know that they have to find doctors that they can trust and just, you know, talk to people, talk to doctors and do it before I did. You know, I waited a little bit. And so I, I just recommend to not have those feelings in your own head. Just go find someone you trust, find an amazing doctor like I did, um, who will eventually send you to a specialist, a rheumatologist, uh, like Dr. Sesson and, um, just speak up for yourself and, you know, take that journey because it might take you to places like it did for me. Uh, and Dr. Carlos, anything to add for people that might think they're suffering from this? Um, I think it's important that if somebody feels that they have arthritis, that they have an inflammatory arthritis, pain, stiffness, swelling, and mold. Back to the Neil Haley Show. My guest again is Dr. Chris Goldberg. He is a professor. He is a former teacher, uh, PhD, and STEM expert. Dr. Chris, thanks for stopping by. Let's just jump into the, the topic today. It's really close to my heart as a former special education teacher. We're going to talk about helping special ed teachers teaching STEM. And what really excites you is you worked in lots of inclusive environments where you had to really meet the needs of special education kids, especially if there was no special ed teacher in there when you were a computer teacher. So give us some ideas of how you can connect STEM as a special ed teacher. Just real quick, this is for all teachers, not special ed teachers. It's actually almost more for general education teachers than special education teachers because there's this belief that those students are going to fail. They can't do it. So I, I can't give them as hard of an activity or I, I can't put them in, in a group with students that don't have this, uh, that don't have an IEP or whatnot. It's the, it's actually the total opposite. All right. I'm ready. And <laughs> students with disabilities may have an IEP because they don't read on grade level. They may not do as well in tests. They may have, miss time in class but when you're working hands-on or you're working on a project that they're interested in that all goes out the door they normally will excel and i have found teaching 23 years uh in inclusive classes and you know 27 years in all some of those years just as a special ed teacher that students with in, you know, that are from an emotional support class or life skills class, or also especially autistic, autistic support class students that are in a my general education class in a class of 25 to 30 will excel and raise their level because they don't have to worry about reading or a test or reading in front of people because now they're doing something they're interested in. They're doing it hands-on and they have more control of the environment. All right, so let's just jump right into some tips. Let's go, all right. Well, definitely challenge all students in an inclusive class and give responsibility and give some structure. They may need structure, the students maybe that have IEPs, but give them responsibility and allow their creativity to come through. All the research shows that if you give them an open space for creativity and let them take their ideas and go with them, they will excel. Often they feel like they're restricted, but not in the STEM class. You know, it should be completely open to creativity. And if it's if it has meaning to them, they're going to excel and they will improve at levels that are amazing. And I saw it myself over, over these years that um, they, they'll connect with technology often a lot more than they'll connect with the work on pencil and paper. And we know that because we see, we see them struggle and 
either whether it's a computer or robotic or just building something with Legos, they have that ability now to connect with something that they did not have before. That's uh, that's why they can excel. They definitely can excel, and that's so, so important. And giving them responsibility. So you're saying a structured classroom, when you're using STEM, there's a lot of hands-on activities involved. There's a lot of things that you have to do. So you really have to have order and structure to the environment, especially giving the responsibilities to kids with IEPs so they can be really cooperative in the process and not feel like they're just being placed in the classroom. They're really becoming an active participant. Yeah, when we when I say structure, that doesn't mean that they have to do this one thing a certain way. But the structure is they're in a group with students that will support them and that will have their ear so that their voice will be heard and their voice may be heard in different ways. And that's why they are considered to have exceptionalities. They may not be as verbal as other students. And they may not write as well as other students, but if you can give them responsibilities and have them fit into a group where their skills can, can be brought out, that's when they excel. Still, though, that creativity should be an open space, and that's where they will do so well, and I've seen it so often. What you don't want to do is have this, your students with IEPs in one area away from the general ed students kind of working together like they do when they're in their when they're in their learning support class or whatnot. They must be separated out. They must have the opportunity to work with all students. And they definitely, some structure to guide them for higher order thinking so that they can then expand on their own. And that's key. Higher order thinking, they expand on their own. And they're figuring all that out through the process. And what we're learning today in this conversation, Dr. Chris, is the importance of everyone being involved in a class. How many times have you been in special education classrooms where they really don't know how to take kids that might not chronologically age-wise have the knowledge base, might be four grades below, but able to adapt the instruction to make it work? Yeah, they're, they, they, their reading levels may be four, five, six, seven years below, but there shouldn't be... A, a structure in a, in a in a in an inclusive class where you're depending on reading because you're going to be giving um, verbal cues, you're going to be giving uh, maybe a video, you're going to have pictures, you're going to have all different ways to provide instruction and provide some kind of guidance of structure for the students to follow that does not involve just one way, just modality of of a reading. So that should not be a problem. You know, that's why they may struggle in some regular classes, a math class or a reading class with peers of their age, where in this type of setting, you know, it's the same way in music and art, they shouldn't have to depend on reading. You know, these the students with disabilities so often excel, you know, in music class and those classes where it doesn't matter if they're behind in reading, um, as long as they're given that opportunity. That's key. You're right. As long as you're giving an opportunity, that's important. What other, what was one more point you can cover that's important about STEM and special education? Um, again, this belief that you know they can't do it, um, and that hinders their development. That and that comes sometimes from parents. It can come from teachers. It can come from other students. And I think my cats are.
We're back to the Neil Haley Show, and I'm first excited to welcome the program my co-host, Paul Hollis. Paul, how are you? And I know you're excited about our guest today. I'm good. I, I definitely am. I'm, I actually live just down the road from where you are now. <laughs> yes, he's in Erie, and you're in Cleveland. Uh, so our guest today is Lolita Molina, actress. How are you, Lolita? And you really are groundbreaking in so many ways, and the challenges to break into the acting business and really kind of becoming such a special thing to be able to do. So when you were growing up, you always dreamed of acting, right? And probably people told you, no, you can't, right? Um, yes, I grew up in a, a big, big family and it was a big family of realists. I grew up in uh, a very uh, right. Midwest area and they always told me to be very realistic with my goals growing up, but I'm a very stubborn child. So I, I'm glad for all of their advice, but I'm still going to be pursuing what I would like to pursue. And I think it's slowly paying off. I think it is definitely with just, you know, just being able to do it. So kind of like talk to talk to me about when you said, okay, I'm really going to be an actor now. You know, it's it's like you, you say you want to, you have your dreams. I had dreams of certain things and say, okay, now I'm going to do it. What age was it when you said I'm going to do it? And maybe- It was around age 11, uh, 10, 11 years old, I believe, when my father found a local community theater group was host, they were hosting um, auditions. And I said, I want to give that a try because I had only ever done dance. And while I love ballet, it wasn't so much the acting style I wanted to continue with. So I first was introduced to theater and fell in love with it and then film a little bit later after that. Wow. And uh, starting out that way, did you find it just that there's a certain love when you're on stage? That you said, this is I something love- I got to do. Yeah. I love being on stage. I do. It's just, uh, I feel that there are limitations to the world of theater versus the different realms that we can create with film, especially today with all of our technological advancements. So while I love theater, I feel like right now it's a little stagnant. So film is where I want to continue pushing myself. Because why is theater stagnant for you? What do you think? I would say theater is stagnant for me in the new plays and shows that are being written. To me, it's kind of fallen to same old, same old. I've seen it before. I know we can say that about films as well. But I feel like you can get away with a lot more in cinema than on on the stage. You figured out a way to get discovered, too, in certain ways, using the power of social media. Would you agree? So tell us on that story of how you did that, because that's key. It was, right? that, yeah, absolutely. And it was kind of by accident. My little sister had made a joke that I wouldn't be able to keep up my at the time musically account longer than a week. Uh, it was the same week it was being bought. Uh, by TikTok and it kind of blew up overnight when a larger creator at the time found one of my videos and she was a big help to my uh, movement. And then then it's up to you to keep it going, right? And that's the thing, what's the crazy thing about social media, especially now, is you got to live on it, right? It's not this, okay, I just posted today, that's it. There's so much more to it, right? So once you went, you were like, you were shocked the reaction, right? One influencer gets your message out and you're like, what just happened here, right? It, it kind of, did you get advice to just go with it? Because I've talked to so many TikTok creators that started from scratch and they just put so much effort and they just like, wow. And then they just, they just went with it. And The thing was that I wasn't really doing much at the time. I was wrapping up uh, high school things. So I would find because it was when dancing was really big on the app and so I was just doing dances but adapting them to my needs being in a wheelchair because a lot of the TikTok dances were pretty user-friendly and I really appreciated that because I was able to not have to put too much change to the dances and still keep up with everyone else so I just filmed what I wanted to when I wanted to and people, I think, really enjoy that side of me because I don't have one specific branch of thing that I will post. If I feel like posting a cooking video over a dance video, I'm going to do that. If I want to post my editing techniques versus um, talking about being in a wheelchair, I will post whatever I want, whenever I please. And I think people like that. 
And it's because you're being a brand. Once you created the brand, you had to live the brand, but they want to see your life. They don't want you to just keep talking about what you've overcome, right? That gets old. You have creating new ideas, things that engage people and entertain people is the big thing about being successful on social media nowadays because there's so much competition. Yeah. I like showing every single side of my life because what you see like on my TikTok and my YouTube, that is who I am. I don't have a activist persona that I put forward. And I think a lot of people who are in similar predicaments to me, their whole brand is pushing uh, awareness for their situations. And I think that's great. I would get very bored doing that. And I feel like it would get a little repetitive in my branch. So I think people like seeing that I'm not just the wheelchair. I have so many other avenues that I love to show other people. And I think, I think people like that. So Paul, are you inspired by what she's done and what she's doing? Yeah. I, uh, Lolita, I'm, I'm expecting great things from you. So I want to see you in the future. First of all, and second of all, I want to ask you, are you related at all to the baseball Molina family? I am do not. Know, do you know uh, who I'm talking about? Yadier Molina and and those folks? Yeah. Uh, no, my family is a baseball family. Oh, you, yeah, the base oh, are you related to not not related to the baseball family though? No, not. Um, oh, I was going I was going to say if you were, my my son would be in love with you because he is a is a Yadier Molina fan from way back he was born in Guatemala so so uh my my son is uh, uh you know a, a great um, uh inspirational Latin American kid so no um within my family about 100 or so years ago we had a baseball player uh who played alongside the time period of Babe Ruth so while not that family I do have family members that are involved in baseball so Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. <laughs> now, once you got the opportunity, went viral on TikTok, meaning really built followers, built a big audience, opportunities came your way. What was your big break then from that? What would you say? My, my agent found me through TikTok. And it's a funny story because I thought he was a scammer because uh, uh -huh. I, I had gotten a couple <laughs> of them and I ignored him uh, four four times, I believe before he got his client who had a million followers on the platform she messaged me and said hey he's legit he's real uh he wants to submit you for a project and so i gave him i gave him a chance and i got to audition for the texas chainsaw film that aired on netflix and then shortly after that i got the job with lionsgate for one up wow and then there you go. It just, it, 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 came, it came from there. But see, that's what people understand. You got to keep grinding. You got to keep creating. You got to keep doing. You never know when that break's going to happen. You shouldn't give up, right? Explain that in so many ways. Because even while you were on social media, you said, what's happening? Is there anything more going to come of this? And then you're sitting there next time in a, th in a th in filming. And you're like, what just happened to me, right? That's Absolutely. That's and, and you're, you, to tell people, why shouldn't they give up in their project, their dream? Tell us that, because I think that's inspiring for you, what you've been doing and how you've been successful so far. I think the main thing people need to take away is using the word stubborn to describe yourself is not going to always be a negative connotation, because being stubborn can also be correlated with your persistent and you're also resilient. So I always take when people tell me that I'm stubborn as a compliment because I'm aiming for only good and positive things. I never aim for a negative, which can also be associated with stubbornness. So I would say, if you know what you want, it's only going to bring positivity to your life and those around you be called stubborn and you can wear it as a badge. <laughs> Do you hope more and more roles involve uh, you, the, t the type of character that can fill in for you? That's the challenge, especially when you work with, people with disabilities and stuff, and you're in this situation where they're not creating the roles when they need to. If they're creating other diverse roles, they have to think about that more. Do you agree? I'm sure you're an advocate in that way to start creating more of them, right? They're not enough of diversity in all different backgrounds and, and shows and films and different things that they need to start doing more and more of. 
I am, but I'm also a realist when it comes to being an advocate. I want it to see it done and I hope to see it done in a realistic way. I saw um, her name's Jessica. She's also in a wheelchair and she was talking about how a lot of producers think if we have a disabled character, the whole show has to be about the disabled character for some reason. Mm -hmm. And we're all saying, we don't want that. We just want to work. And I kind of see it as, it's kind of like the uh, American Disability Act movement all over again, but for this specific industry. And um, we don't want to be seen as special and put above others. We just want to be able to have that same chance as everyone else. And that's how I see it. And they aren't, they're doing okay, but you know how they splash in diversity in certain films and different things. And so, hey, let's make it real, what the real world's like, right? Not this rose-colored world where everyone's in perfect shape and looking. No, really, let's be real. That's what we have to start. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.